Fieldwork acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which this podcast is produced. We would also like to pay respects to their elders past, present and future and extend our respect to all First Nations people. Personal identity, so race, gender, culture, class, how these things intersect with nationalism and with a kind of like larger geopolitical shifts as well. So it's a very, I guess, expanded scope that I have. You're listening to Fieldwork, the podcast on contemporary Australian art. I'm your host, Drew Pettifer, and in Fieldwork, I bring together conversations with artists and experts discussing key themes of contemporary art practice. Today on Fieldwork, we discuss intersectional feminism with Eugenia Lim. Hello, I'm Eugenia Lim. I'm an artist. I work across video performance and installation. I dabble in teaching as well, and I also work um, with Assemble Papers. I founded Assemble Papers about five or six years ago. Um, I was editing the publication, and it's one that looks at the intersection between art architecture and design, and I guess um, sustainability in the environment as well, trying to connect the dots between left and right sides of the brain. Eugenia's practice looks at intersectionality in very expanded terms, not just the intersection of feminism and race, but the nexus between gender, race, class and national identity, among others. And I thought, oh, of course, often we don't hear about artists who work on the intersections of um, race, gender, sexuality, and then also placing it historically. That was my introduction to you, going, I don't know this artist, looking at it and going, we all should know this artist. And then, well, the stuff I teach tells me why we don't know this artist. Okay, I'm Carolyn de Cruz. I'm a senior lecturer at um, La Trobe University, working in gender, sexuality and diversity studies. That occupies most of my time. Um, I've been there for 10 years um, and I ended up there, landed there, because I've always had an interest in um, the way in which activism relates to academia and the way in which marginalised groups make their way in this thing we call democracy that assumes that everybody is equal and free in a neutral world. I was only going to talk a bit about how you approach those questions of intersectionality and these multiplicities of identities, I suppose, that we, these different subject positions we occupy sure. as well, because it's something you seem to um, grapple with a lot in your practice. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's interesting. I think intersectionality wasn't really a word that I was that familiar with or used. Um, in fact, I don't know if I I would necessarily use it. I feel like I kind of embody, um, embody that without really needing to kind of articulate it as a thing. Um, and I think what I mean by that is um, growing up Asian in Australia, I guess it's always been a part of my identity, this idea of kind of being, uh, I suppose, within a few realms or never quite at home in any one space. So I think this idea of intersectionality or understanding, you know, other people's experiences, not necessarily kind of knowing them, but having empathy for difference has always been part of my makeup. Um, and it's it's definitely part of my practice. It's just sort of the, the lens through which I view things. People sometimes find my practice quite hard to 
position because it does look at all of those things in the one moment, I hope, rather than necessarily being, you know, um, just focused on feminism or just focused on the Asian experience. Of so, course. And you don't make a, a feminist work and then mm. a work focusing on post-colonialism and identity. Yeah, you, I you hope that You do put them into one kind of context. I hope that they're sort of existing in the one mm. moment because I think that's very much um, that kind of is our time. You know, everything is coexisting and sort of contradictory and um, sort of rolled up in the one. So I think art kind of needs to do that too these days. My practice has always looked at identity and within that um, my own cultural heritage and um, I guess being Asian in Australia has been quite a big part of what I'm interested in and I guess I feed in a lot of uh, I guess current affairs and news um, as well as looking at art history and theory as well so it's quite broad um, but it allows me to kind of look at you know that I guess that kind of history that I have um, as a second generation Australian and how Australia then fits into the kind of global mix as well. I'm interested to hear you talk about how the competing interests that sit under this idea of multiplicity of identities or um, intersectionality play out as well, because I know that other writers and artists and um, cultural producers have found this notion of having different identities can also create tensions within their practice, where, as you said before, sometimes you felt like the work's categorised because it's a feminist work or because it's a work about a particular geopolitical issue. Um, do you have particular approaches in your practice that deal with those tensions or are there particular ways you think through them? Oh, that's a tricky one. Yeah. I think um, perhaps the tensions are always there and maybe they're never really resolved, but I think... Each time I start a project, it's because I have a question about something, or I don't, I don't know the answer. I'm, or I'm confused, or I want to learn more about something, and that's kind of the starting point for me. Perhaps I never know the answer through the work, but it helps me figure out my position in relation to it. So, um, for example, a work that I made at the start of last year was the People's Currency, where I set up. Uh, a factory space at Fed Square. So it was a kind of really high foot traffic, very public um, space. And the work was looking at, I guess, the human impact of globalisation and the production of our smartphones and these kind of objects that we sort of um, covet and take for granted at the same time. So I think in that work I was interrogating my, I guess, you know, my role or my complicity in this whole cycle of sort of human labour and exploitation. I use an iPhone, I have Apple products. Um, you know, I'm very far away from the site of making in China, but, you know, through my Chinese heritage and through being part of this kind of global supply chain, um, I'm part of that loop. And um, it's labour too, isn't it? Because yeah. you've got them to sign up for a shift. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, they so they were working as well. Yeah. which is great. But yeah. everyone loves to get paid, even if the currency is completely useless. Well, there's something <laughs> about great. gold as well, isn't there? Yeah, there's an allure to it, definitely. Yeah, and I think because you've thematised it in a way of saying you get your gold very quickly, <laughs> which is a little bit like panning for gold, isn't it? Like yeah. Like hoping that you 
you strike it. That's true. Relates to some of your other artwork, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that that allure of um, yeah, striking it rich or the quick the quick buck as well and fortune. Um, I, I I did make a work that was sort of based around um, yeah, gold mining and um, mm. Asian immigration as well. And that's what I noticed and remembered when I went to your website. Yeah. Thought, oh, here's a really good way to tell this story. Yep. Because it's a part of history that is often quite hidden. Definitely. Mm. Yeah, but so central to Australian identity exactly. and Australia's history mm. as well. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, I like I like um, what can be embedded in something like gold, like as a substance, as a colour, as, um, as desire as well, like all of these things in one. So, mm. But artists can literally make visible these things as well, which is one thing that again, when it comes to history, mm. can sometimes be obscured. Yeah, exactly. You're literally showing people exactly. a representation. That's such a faster narrative and, <laughs> yeah. and, and much more visceral Yeah, it's narrative. true. Yeah, and it doesn't take a whole book to kind of, um, you know, reflect or comprehend these things. And also you can be showing you know, five perspectives in one, whereas with a history book it's, it's you know, totally. the dominant kind of narrative or... You've got to see multiple with multiple lenses at the same time. Yeah, mm. exactly. Mm. Asking people to sign up here um, and think about a working day or what you do in that working life. And at the same time, also to take our minds to an immigration story in Australia that doesn't often um, get the same amount of publicity, at, you know, in um wide publicity, I guess, of thinking about the gold rush and how that um, relates to Chinese immigration, which can take our minds again to the way in which Australia established itself as a federation and the first piece of legislation is to expel Chinese people and the Pacific Islanders. So I guess I do, I have a kind of evolving colour palette or um, materials that I use and symbols as well. So at the moment, um, the last few years I've been really interested in um, a very bright yellow, which is drawn from um, Ron Robertson Swan's vault sculpture or the Yellow Peril, as it's known. Um, And that's become quite a symbol for me again, of that convergence of, like, art history and um, immigration histories as well. So the yellow peril, um, for me, has become this symbol that both represents a very loaded history for um, art and design in Australia. It was a sculpture that was very hated and kind of vilified and moved around and graffitied and unloved, but now it's become a symbol of Melbourne, so we actually see it built into the super tram stops on Swinson Street it's used throughout contemporary architecture in Melbourne and Australia. So I find that cycle super interesting. And at the same time, looking at Chinese migration and the, you know, the kind of cycle that um, Chinese and Asian people have kind of been through in Australia in terms of being seen as a yellow peril um, during the gold rush era and then, you know, perhaps again um, this century as well, and it kind of 
you know, it's this sort of endless cycle that kind of goes around. But then you walk down Swanson Street and it feels like you could be um, in Asia as well. You know, we, we've sort of completely transformed um, as a country since those gold mining times. So I guess, you know, using the colour and the symbol to represent sort of two things or two histories at once is what I'm really interested in. As part of um, the discourse around intersectional feminism in Melbourne in particular in recent times, there have been critiques of what feminism might mean to um, different cultural categories of belonging as well. Um, In particular, I'm thinking of um, some critique from um, First Nation women around Mm -hmm. their idea about feeling included in notions of feminism in the Mm -hmm. contemporary moment. I'm wondering how you think through some of those questions as well about Mm. feminism and race and how they currently kind of intersect through that sense of discourse and those those histories of struggle, I suppose, as well. Mm, No, it's a really interesting question and um, I think it is interesting what what Paola Bala says about gender not trumping race. Like I think I'd probably agree with that. For me, I think they're at least on a par or something. Like I think that um, my sort of feminist heroes, you know, the women that I look to like Mel Letterman Ukulees or, you know, I guess the kind of feminist performance artists of that era, yeah, they they don't they don't look like me. They're definitely like white women and there's different concerns um, of that time. But I also still like I, I still hold them up and kind of look to their work as um, incredible, you know, documents or provocations of a time that still have resonance. So I definitely agree that we can be more critical and always be questioning like, yeah, what is the point of this? Like what, yeah, how can we kind of be more inclusive? And it's something whereby the inclusion of, um, you know, trans women or gender non-conforming or other cultures, other heritages um, can be more included in shows. Like, it's super important. Yeah, and it's very hard. I think one of the hardest things with intersectionality is there is this temptation or at least inclination for people to keep adding on markers of identity. So you end up speaking in such a way, even if you are talking about part-time work or flexibility in the workplace, of um, seeking out, say, a a woman of colour who might be queer as well and, you know, possibly have some kind of disability because if you get as many different markers as you can in the one person, then somehow that's going to give you the most privileged perspective from which you can work out the problem that you're doing. There is some element of worth in that. For instance, I don't think it's any accident that in the field I work in, gender, sexuality and diversity studies, um, most of the people who end up working in these are are queer, are people of colour, you know, are in are trans, are in some way marginal, and sometimes have multiple markers of identity that um, uh, would be considered classically intersectional. But that's not really what um, we're aiming at with intersectionality. So we're trying to get to a place where the axes of oppression is what we're focusing on and how we deal with that on an institutional 
level and away from, oh, here's a person who's got all of these markers of identity within themselves. So it's actually quite a hard thing it to is. navigate and, and even speak about. Of course. And recognising the specificity of experience of those different markers of identity that come together is important. But as you say, they also play out in different kinds of ways. And it's not, I think one of the difficulties that I find can pop up around this topic is rather than actually recognising specificities and, and creating collective responses, it can actually end up quite atomizing. Like you're over here in the, this intersection of these six boxes and that's where you sit. And somehow that marker is meant to tell everybody else where you're coming from, not only where you're coming from, but how well qualified you are to speak about that stuff. It can give us some information, but it can't give us the dynamic of, you know, the power that's working institutionally. So we need to work further than the atomising labels mm. of just adding each identity marker to the picture. And an individual experience, as relevant as that can be for um, telling a story, is not necessarily reflective of the structural relationships that exist either. So... It's where a story starts and it's really important to tell that story and it's really important to talk about the way in which um, any individual starts to make sense of themselves. But you can only make sense of yourself in relation to a history or into the institutions and social, cultural fabric that surrounds you. And that's what we don't have the information for. And so works like Eugenia's give us that fabric they give us a narrative that's working with immigration at the same time that it's working with labour, at the same time it's working with race, at the same time that it's working with gender. And that's what I mean about Eugenia, bringing all of these multiple levels of meaning together visually at the same time. Again, this mm -hmm. idea that within these discrete movements, which are very much about a particular form of liberation through identity... Mm -hmm. immediately recognising these other forms of oppression that exist that um, require... Solidarity. Solidarity as well, yeah. which yeah. despite the fact we use terms like intersectionality today, mm -hmm. I'm not convinced the same forms of solidarity necessarily exist in the same ways, perhaps. If you go to a queer event, and I remember this day of going to the same-sex marriage um, announcement, and some of us went there with a no pride in detention banner, and a lot of people got very upset with us, and it was like, this is not the day, get this, for politics. And I was stunned. Is this not about politics? Is the same-sex marriage not about politics? And don't we want to take the opportunity when there's thousands of us here to say, okay, this might be a day that's making a lot of queer folk very happy, but can we acknowledge at the same time what's happening in our name as citizens of this country that are doing heinous things um, and I wonder to people if, seeking asylum? Yeah, definitely. I wonder if it's also this question around how politics is conceived as well. I think sometimes today there's almost this idea that the action you were just talking about, bringing a, a pro-refugee banner to an uh, equal marriage campaign waters down messages. I think that's almost this idea that the sophistication of, of political debate 
is not recognised in the same kind of ways, perhaps. Yeah, I think you're right. I think what politics has be- is, is seen in a very narrow way and it's seen as ter- in terms of lobby groups arguing for a particular thing. And so what's encouraged now is not to look at things intersectionally but to look at um, groups of people as we are here today for LGBTIQ people. So you, you're not allowed to talk about Aboriginal people today unless they're Aboriginal and gay. Okay, you you can't talk about um, other issues, incarceration rates, for for instance, with Aboriginal people, and and the same thing goes in whatever rally you go to. There's a way of thinking about people that makes us more discreet, not intersectional, and that comes from the way in which bureaucracies work, so that we name identities as if they are um, separate from one another. It's seen as um, gay people are people. This is not a political issue. So somehow rights discourse gets to be depoliticised as well. It's very bizarre. I would say, though, that in the 70s there was more awareness of how different identity, marginal identity movements actually had stuff in common with one another and more talk of solidarity. I think there's that desire today, um, and I guess this is how key concepts and buzzwords work, is that they become, they, they gain a greater space in the public sphere, and intersectionality is one of those words, which thankfully we're using now. But it, it's not as if there um, weren't questions to be asked of any movement that acted on its own. We live in very different times. Um, You know, we're kind of building on probably more didactic language um, and practices that kind of, you know, had to be that way perhaps at that time. But I think hopefully we're getting better at this idea that feminism um, is something that is about equality for everyone. It's not, you know, it's not about kind of better rights or conditions just for the privileged few. That is sort of why feminism is sort of part of Uh, a a continuum for me. To get a better understanding of intersectional feminism in the arts, I spoke to artist and curator Paola Bala, a Wemba Wemba and Gunachamara woman of Italian and Chinese heritage. Eugenia's work and um, and the work of, you know, many of the other artists, they're having really critical dialogue with audiences that, you know, Needs, needs to happen and is um, in a lot of ways way overdue. I think too that making sure that there's an intersectional lens on all of our work is very important and um, really examining, you know, what it means to be at the intersection of race and gender and, and class in this country. There's a lot of, you know, myth-making in Australia that it's a classless society, but we know that that's not true. In regards to race, I think that, you know, everything... It just needs to be seen and understood first things first, you know, from a first people's perspective and that that's always included and thought about, you know. So I think that's just some of the functions of why their work is really important. Yeah, definitely. I'm wondering, do you think that um, works that have an intersectional basis or works from artists who occupy intersectional positions create an even more complex relationship to ethics perhaps as well? 
Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, for people, you know, who identify as non-binary and, um, you know, and transgendered people and people who are marginalised and othered, you know, it needs to be upheld and valued as opposed to seen as, um, you know, in Australia there's very particular right-wing backlash to, you know, everything being politically correct. You know, people express, you know, this frustration and they say things like, oh, we can't just say what we want anymore, you know, but... It's actually not true. Racists um, in Australia, particularly on social media towards Aboriginal people, are very outspoken and at oftentimes proud about their racism, you know, and don't even bother hiding their identities. So it's very important to uphold, you know, um, standpoints and the methodology too of intersectional thought and even just, you know, remembering not to forget that, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw, you know, the black woman who articulated intersectionality in the 1990s in the United States, you know. So um, I wanted to remind them about the role that Aboriginal and black and brown women and trans women and, and Asian women in Australia contributed to, you know, womanism as well as, you know, liberal feminism. And sometimes their contributions get left out of those conversations, you know, and... In regards to Aboriginal feminist standpoint theories that, like, um, Professor Aileen Morton-Robinson speaks about, and she wrote about this in 2000 in her book, Talking Up to the White Woman, and she said, you know, while white women were trying to protect, you know, abortion laws, that Aboriginal women were actually requesting that we not be forcibly sterilised anymore. You know, so there are very distinct parallel expectations and movements and demands that can sit side by side, you know, and two things can be true at once. So I guess it's just considering all of that and making sure that all of those voices were considered in speaking back to a dominant force or ism. Fieldwork is produced by Shannon Goodwin and me, Drew Pettifer, and supported by Bus Projects. Audio production, editing and mixing by Beck Fari. Our theme music is by Martin King. Lachlan Sue is our graphic designer. Our intern is Jake Davies. Special thanks to Eugenia Lim, Carolyn De Cruz, and Paola Bala for your time. That's it for this episode of Fieldwork. For past episodes and information on how to subscribe, head to fieldworkpodcast.com.au. In our next episode, we'll hear from Lyndall Walker on identity and fashion. Uh, I mean, I think fa- fashion is an amazing way to discuss gender and, to, and you know, to experiment with gender. I mean, it's so fundamental. I mean, you just sort of think about, you know, when you're a kid and, uh, yeah, we, we all do it to some extent. That's next time on Fieldwork.